0: Hello and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a church past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy March, everyone. Spring is finally here, although after that snowfall a couple days ago, it certainly does not feel like it. Really hoping it warms up soon. This is part three of series six, Historic Theaters, topic three, and we are finally going to explore the how, when, why the Folly became known as the Folly Theater. And just like part two, this is a long one, so we're just going to dive right in. Recap real quick. uh, Part one of this topic is all about the earliest years of the folly, when it was known as the standard and then the century. Part two is focused on the theater's days as Schubert's Missouri. So if this is your first time listening, highly recommend you go back and listen to parts one and two first. And if you enjoy them, Uh, I hope you'll also listen to Topic 1 of this series, which is the Empress Theatre, Part 1 and 2, and Topic 2, which is the Opera Houses, Part 1 and 2. Additionally, I think you would also enjoy my episode on jazz from my very first series, and uh, Series 2, Paris of the Plains, which is all about Pendergast and Prohibition. Um, So again, it's talking about what the city was like during those early years. Uh, I also have a series that's similar to this and that I speak about the history of different buildings in Kansas City. That's Series 5, Treasures of Kansas City. Okay, here we go. Um, Also, one more thing. A quick content warning for those of you who listen with kiddos. I don't get explicit, but I do mention some adult topics. Okay, so I guess here's the actual recap. <laughs> Um, the theater was built in 1900 by Louis C. Curtis for Mr. Edward Butler, spent two years as the standard, 20 as the central, closed for a couple of years, um, bought by the Schubert brothers in 1920, reopened as Schubert's Missouri in 1923, um, Most of topic two, I spend a lot of time talking about events outside of Kansas City to add greater context about uh, the theater world in general. And it's crazy what was going on. Is I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Okay, here we go. Picking up right where we left off, the Schubert brothers closed the doors of the theater in 1932. It's the Great Depression. Nobody has any money, especially not for going to the theater. Uh, so the entire industry is suffering. It's not just the folly. The building remained closed for almost 10 years. It didn't reopen again until 1941. A Mr. Barney Ellis or Alice? I'm not actually sure which way it's pronounced. I think it's Alice. A-L-L-I-S owner of the Mühlbach Hotel, it's a very famous, very old hotel in Kansas City. I'm going to have to cover it someday. Um, He bought the building and reopened it as the Folly Burlesque. So obviously it's specializing in burlesque. According to several sources, the majority of the audience in the 1940s were actually World War II soldiers who were passing through Kansas City um, through Union Station. Its first show, once it reopened, was a striptease called Scanties of 1941. Some of the most famous burlesque performers to pass through the folly during this time were Gypsy Rose Lee, Tempest Storm, Rose LaRose, Peaches Browning, and Miss Chesty Gabor. Gabor? G-A-B-O-R. So, Barney Ayliss was Alice? No, we said Ayliss. Barney was born in February 1886, son of Abraham and Rebecca. Um, they were Jewish-Polish immigrants. They moved from Poland to Kansas City in 1888. So Barney was two at the time. Um, and remember, I mentioned in the previous episode that during this same time period, um, there were pogroms. In multiple European countries, uh, particularly Eastern European, which led to millions of Jews immigrating to America. So, FindAgrave.com lists three siblings for Barney Morris, Ida, and Charles. But according to CaseyHistory.org, he was one of seven. The others weren't named. I don't know if, you know, they. Died in infancy, um, stillborn, or we just have missing information. I don't know. Also, according to caseyhistory.org, he began working to help support his family very, very, very young. Only six years old, which, yikes. He's a baby. Babies don't need jobs. But eventually, uh, when he was all grown up, he found work at the Casey Bill of Fair Press, Which specialized in print jobs for hotels and restaurants, pamphlets, etc. And this came in handy later because at age 19, um, 1905, he became a business partner at Fair Press, and then soon after, he actually bought out his other partner and owned the company as a whole and renamed it A-List Press. Um, So. This is uh, early 1900s. Not too long later, early 1920s, he started s- transitioning into the hotel business um, rather than, you know, hotel adjacent. Um, he bought the Connor Hotel in Joplin and the Daniel Boone Tavern in Columbia, Missouri. And then finally, in 1931, he took over the Millbach which is on 12th Street between Wyandotte and Central. So it's just a couple of blocks east of the folly. Today, the mule block is known as the Marriott downtown. So all of you from Casey, you know which one that is. Obviously his business interests exceeded the hotel business. He died in 1962 and the plaza above the municipal auditorium parking garage is named after him. After Bernie's death, Anbar Associates and Elk Realty out of New York took control of the building. Wasn't able to find any history of them online, so if anyone out there knows something, please send me a message. Another piece of info you can send me, if you know the answer, is when did the theater desegregate? So remember, segregation is the law of the land for like a hundred years after the, the end of the Civil War. And it didn't end... Until the Civil Rights Act was signed in 1964. I'm guessing that this is when the hotel desegregated. But I don't have any specific dates in like a newspaper article or anything. I mean, it's possible that um, they once, I don't know, 50s maybe. Probably not the 40s, but maybe in the 50s. It's possible that the owners were like, yeah, it's okay, whatever, we don't care. It's also possible that after the um, uh, Civil Rights Act was signed, that they were like, "Eh, you know what? Federal government, you stepping on my toes. I don't appreciate that. I'm not going to listen to you." It's most likely it was 1964, but you never know. There's a lot of uh, nuance to different parts of history. Maybe nuances of the word, but you know, I think you're trying to you get what I'm trying to say. Anyways. According to all of my sources, movies were not shown at the theater until 1958. Okay. So that's a really long time, guys. Um, Movies become popular in the early 1900s and talkies, movies with sound, started in the late 1920s. So um. I know that the theater closed. She was Missouri closed in 32, but I find it really hard to believe that they didn't show movies before that. Um, And then, you know, more so if Barney reopens in 41, that's almost 20 years before movies are shown. That's such a long time. They are so commonplace by then. But like I said, several of my sources were all saying something like movies began in 1958 and slowly devolved into adult films. So here's that uh, content warning for the kids. Um, These are pornos. And, you know, 1960s, it's a lot racier than the ones that were shown at the Empress in the 1930s. But uh, I kind of doubt that they're anything like a modern porn movie. I have... I have no experience to base this on. This is just a guess. According to one of my sources, by the end of 1969, the owners were seriously considering ceasing live shows altogether and only having adult films. Quote, On December 28, 1969, dynamite was placed in a metal drain pipe on the west side of the building. The explosion ripped through the outer covering of bricks, but didn't damage much of the inside. A small area about six feet in diameter was damaged due to the dynamite. End quote. Um, So the author of the article is positing, um, you know, he's um, supposing, suggesting that one of the owners or maybe the manager, somebody who worked for them was like, hmm, we're losing money. You know what would be Tragic the building was destroyed and we recovered the insurance money, and therefore a bomb was placed on purpose. (laughs) I think that's really funny. Alright, so the Folly Burlesque closes in 1973. And this is despite a resurgence of popularity of burlesque and female impersonation in the 1970s, particularly here in uh, Kansas City. Female impersonation isn't something that I've discussed this far in the series, but I feel like I mentioned it in my Prohibition episode, or at least I know I came across the information when I was researching that topic at the time. Maybe it didn't make the final cut. Um, I also think that I discussed it with Stuart from the Gay and Lesbian Archives of america when we did our Patreon episode. Um... Either way, female impersonation is a staple of 1930s vaudeville, and it's when a male plays a woman. Um, it's basically the origin of drag, as far as I can tell. <laughs> but the folly's just not making enough money. Um, the owner cannot keep up with maintenance. It's really starting to fall apart. So that's why it closes. And it's going to be demolished. They actually put up... A, um, um, like a notice, a call for bids, like, hey, you know, how much would it, we have to pay you to do this for us? Um, putting out the feelers, that kind of thing. Um, but while that's going on, some concerned citizens hear about the proposed destruction of this magnificent building, and they're like, no, not on my watch. I would love to know, how this came about, um, I like to imagine that it was some kind of secretive hush-hush backdoor meeting. It's probably something as simple as, I read about it in the Sunday paper and I got mad, so I did something about it. Which is perfectly fine. I also love that. Um, so the heroic save of the building is in thanks to a few people, um, mostly, or at least, um they are remembered as such as being the leaders, Joan Dillon and William Daramus III. So Joan Dillon was born in 1925. She graduated from Mary Institute at high school in St. Louis in 1943, then received her bachelor's from Smith college in 1947 and her master's in medieval history from the university of Missouri in 1969. She married George Dillon in 1948. He was from Liberty, Missouri, and they moved to Kansas City after they got married. She served on the board of directors for the National Trust for Historic Preservation from 1980 to 1989, so already she's like super awesome. Look at that. Uh, She volunteered for, oh my god, the source that I found for this listed like every single possible volunteer organization in Kansas City. Way too many to name. She wrote um, American Theaters Performance Halls of the 19th Century with fellow preservationist and photographer David Naylor in 1977. Um, It's said that they wrote two books together, but um, I think my source was off on that because I only found this one listed for her. And then she died in her home in Cape Cod, January 2009. So uh, kind of recent, or at least 2009 feels recent. It's probably not. According to KCHState.org, William was born in Pittsburgh, Kansas in 1915. He attended Casey Junior College and then graduated from the University of Michigan in 36. Afterwards, he attended Harvard and received his law degree in 39. Only age 29. <laughs> Makes you feel inaccurate when you read stuff like that. He became president of the Chicago Great Western Railroad Company at age 39 in 1949. So it's been 10 years since he graduated with his law degree. But only a year later, he, quote, took the helm, which I believe means he was president. But um, literally, that's all it said was took the helm um, of the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad. Then in 1961, he became president of the Kansas City Southern Railroad Company and he remained president of the KCSR, uh, which had a name change, but I don't remember what it was because I didn't write it down, until his death in um, 1989, November 15th, 1989. So while he is president of the KC Southern Railroad Company, he's living in Kansas City and just like Joan, he's serving on several philanthropic boards, um, including chairman of the board of the Performing Arts Foundation, which I'll speak about in a moment, and director of the Friends of the Zoo, which was from 81 to 90, or sorry, 81 to 89. Um, And actually the education pavilion at the entrance of the zoo is named after him. So these two worked together, they gathered their friends, and they formed the Performing Arts Foundation with the goal of saving and preserving the folly. And they succeeded. They managed to get the building placed on the uh, National Register in June 1974, and they bought the building for $500,000. Gotta be honest, that sounds hella cheap. Even for that time. Um, As a reminder, the National Register is a really big deal. It's a nationally maintained list of buildings and historic sites that are significant to national history. It offers some tax breaks in exchange for maintaining the historic integrity of the building. So usually I would read through the register application and cite it as a source. But actually this is one of the ones that has not yet been digitized, so it's not available on um, the National Register website. The Performing Arts Foundation still owns and manages the Folly Theater. Its mission is to, quote, preserve Kansas City's oldest historic theater as a premier performance venue. We commit to maintain our building's heritage, diversify our program and entertainment offerings, and be an enthusiastic participant in the continuing revitalization of downtown Kansas City. End quote. All right, so... I'm about to get into some of the money details here. There's a lot. Quote, Money was solicited and received from a wide range of sources, part of a $1 million urban development grant from the Housing and Urban Development Department, $25,000 from the Junior League of Kansas City for the restoration of the Palladian windows, and 250000 from both Kansas City Southern Industries and Hallmark funds were matched by the Missouri State Office of Historic Preservation, end quote. So um, the Follies website actually states that at this time they received $60,000 from the Department of the Interior. And all of this money is used to renovate the building, um, the interior and the exterior Um, And sorry, just so that I'm clear here, I sort of feel like I I might not have been when I started this. This is when they bought the building in 74, okay? Um, They really need all this money. It's in really bad condition. The Folly Theater website also reports that nine metric tons, so for Americans, that's 19,841.6 pounds of pigeon droppings were removed from the interior of the building. This is why they needed all that money. Oh my god, that is so gross. A better idea of how much this is. Okay, an Asian elephant weighs about 8,800 pounds. And an African elephant ranges from 6,000 to 13,000 pounds on average. So, this is the equivalent of two elephants. That's how much bird poop they remove. Just. Bob. Okay, I think his pronounced name is Burkbile. I'm sorry. Um, It's B E. R. K. E. B. I. L. E. From again, <laughs> Burke Nelson Love and Associates, which is B-N-L-A, L. Uh, A. was hired for the renovation of the auditorium and the dressing rooms. This company was formed in KC by R. Bruce Patty, Bob, Tom Nelson, and Bill Love in 1970. Um, actually. Uh, connection to another Patreon episode that I've done. This is the f- one of the firms, not the only one, one of the firms that helped design the Hyatt Skywalk, which collapsed in 1981, resulting in the deaths of 114 people. It is a seminal moment in Kansas City and national history. In fact, Many Kansas Cityans today can remember the exact moment that they heard about the collapse if they weren't there themselves. There were thousands of people who were there at the time of the event. Um, So it's remembered a lot like the Trade Towers attack in 2001. Like, it's just instant when you talk to people. They're like, oh yeah, I remember this. And they can remember their emotions. It's very powerful. Um, I spoke about this event with historian Elizabeth Hartzler. In uh, I think that was summer of 2020. She actually has a personal connection to the event and she made it the focus of her graduate thesis several years ago. And just she knows absolutely everything about the event. Um, so if you're interested in learning more, subscribe to my Patreon and you can access that episode. But, um, BNLA they changed their name to Burkbile Nelson, um, Shu. Uh, I-M-M-E-N-S-C-H-U-H McDowell Architects um, So for short, this is a lot easier B-N-I-M They changed their name in 91 after Patty left And David Imanchu, uh Who had originally joined the firm in 1970 He and Stephen, sorry, just Steve McDowell uh, Who joined in 78 became partners um, when the name changed in 91. Okay. Well, that was confusing. I hope you enjoyed that. So Bob is still with BNIM today. He is, quote, the founding chairman of the American Institute of Architects National Committee for the Environment and was also instrumental in the formation of the U.S. Green Building Council and its L E E D rating system, end quote. Bob, okay, so he's the guy who, I mean, the firm was hired to do the renovations after the building was bought, right? He's the guy who's, like, leading the project. Okay. He's actually done a ton of work on the intersection of climate change and the built environment since the early 90s. It's fascinating and truly impressive. Um, When he first started studying architecture, he studied under architect uh, Buckminster Fuller whose work, um, the geodesic spear, which is, okay, so it's basically a dome building, right? Okay, that's what his work, Mr. Fuller, um, focused on. It inspired the design of Disney's Epcot. Fuller did not design the Epcot, but his work inspired it. And Bob studied under Fuller, so it's just... Very cool little connection there. All right. Also during the 1970s, actually 1976, famous burlesque performer Sally Rand, who during um, the height of her career had performed at the Folly, led an auction of Folly memorabilia in order to raise money for the reconstruction of the building. The Palladian window was restored using the $25,000 grant from the Department of the Interior, and that happened in 77. In 1978, the Folly hosted the League of Historic American Theaters. Guess what? These guys are coming back for their annual conference to KC this summer. It's very cool. Um, If anyone from the League of Historic American Theaters is listening, Laura would kind of like to attend. Um, you know, maybe just like a few social events or something. Um, if you want to throw a pass my way, I wouldn't say no. Um, the league was formed in 1974. So just four years before it's quote, a nonprofit organization with the main purpose of sustaining historic theaters across North America for the benefit of their communities and future generations. The League defines a membership-eligible historic theater as one that is at least 50 years old and includes at least one of the following attributes. Is an architecturally significant structure deemed worthy of preservation, has played an important role in the history of American stage and screen, and or can be used as a performing arts facility. Guess what? The Folly is all three. Also in 1978, because, man, we are still stuck in the 70s. This is a very busy area. Uh, They received a grant from the DOI, this time $50,000, to redo the plaster work of the interior. Also a $1 million grant from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And they broke ground on an addition to the building. Like I said, 78, very big year for them. Very busy. In the end, all of these uh, restorations um, during the 1970s cost a total of $4.4 million. But the theater finally reopens November 17th, 1981. Yay! Everyone celebrate. So the mayor throws the switch. The lights are turned on, and the Grand Lady of 12th Street... Fabulous nickname, by the way. Has been reopened at last, and is in operation as the Folly Theater. And has remained in operation as the Folly Theater since that time, with minor closings for renovations. She's actually been closed repeatedly in the past 20 years for upgrades and renovations. So, in 2000, uh, closed for renovation in 2012... A new, the current, marquee was added to the exterior of the building. They renamed the auditorium in honor of longtime supporter Stefan Metzler in 2017. More renovations in 2018. Uh, renovations to the lobby, restrooms, bar, and a new elevator was added to the, again, renovated Joan Kent Dillon Lounge. And a new HVAC. Also added 2018. Um, Totals, I have one source that said 2.5 million and one source that said 2.7 million. In 2019, the theater owners raised over $45,000 in order to replace the server, office computers, ticket scanners, create a new website, and buy a high resolution digital projector and matching software. Finally, Closed for about three months in spring-early summer last year, 2022, for more upgrades. This one totaled $4.2 million, about half of which came from the Sunderland Foundation here in Casey. It included some more updates to the audiovisual equipment, new seats, new carpets, new stage curtain, as well as um, adding reproductions of two murals by Thomas Benton Hart to the lobby a new stained glass artwork behind the balcony lounge bar created by local artist, Kathy Bernard, and also in the lobby is now a six foot tall bronze statue by Ed Dwight. And might do an episode on him at some later date. He was the first black man to become astronaut and he is from KCK. Uh, the statue was donated to the theater in 1988. Today, the Folly is Kansas City's only 19th century theater still standing. The Folly Archival Collection was donated to the Missouri Valley Research Center in 2014. It's 313 Baker boxes. A Baker box is a uh, one foot by one foot box. Four map drawers and three tubes. Altogether, it equals 173.28 linear feet. It was made available to the public in 2022, so it took them eight years to, um, catalog and, um, create the, the finding aid, everything that you do when you're, um, accessioning a collection. The Folly turned 120 in 2020, and of course was closed during the pandemic. Uh, with nearly 200 shows canceled or rescheduled. The shows are back now. Currently, they are working on a digital project, and this sounds very cool. Um, It's funded by the Missouri Humanities Council Grant for uh, $2,500. The article I found was sparse on details. The Folly already has a basic timeline of its history on their website, But it sounds like they're looking to expand it and add photographs and videos, original photographs and videos. Um, So if anyone has any they would like to share with the Folly, please reach out to them. Other goals and upcoming projects to be completed by 2025 include repainting the auditorium, which the last time it was repainted was 2000, upgrades to further upgrades to the audio equipment in order to improve the sound for the hearing impaired a digital billboard and exterior lighting all right that's the end we are current um there is one more thing i want to tell you about so apparently many folks believe that this building is haunted sadly it's not the phantom that'd be really cool if we could be like oh we have our own phantom of the opera here in kansas city that's not the case um I guess they're supposed to be poltergeists. This is a question mark here I'm not sure uh the correct terminology for these spirits the, um the first is the building's first manager doe um Joe Donaga there we go um who I spoke about in topic one um the second is an unidentified woman so Donnegan is reportedly a happy spirit, and he likes to just walk around and keep an eye on his theater. Um, However, the woman is described as wearing, quote, a long gown and acting distressed. She has been seen rushing in a panic to the stage before disappearing, end quote. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me as we explore this piece of Kansas City's history. This concludes... Topic 3 and Series 6. Next month, we are going to begin Series 7. Still undecided on a cool series name, this is your last chance to send me suggestions. I will be covering the history of Kansas State's various amusement parks. Hmm. Sources. Mostly, I used uh, a lot of online sources. The Folly Theater.org, Cinematreasures.org, an article in the Kansas City Telegraph from 2009, KansasCityHistory.org, PendergastKC.org, FindAgrave.com, HauntedHouses.com, and an article from org dated um, October 2022. There we go. I had to remember that. Um, but I also found a few short biographies online for Bob, Joan, and William. Lastly, I want to mention Enchanted Years of the Stage, Kansas City at the Crossroads of American Theater, 1870-1930, to by Dr. Felicia Landry. I didn't use it for this episode, because the book ends in 1930, and this all takes place way after that. But I did read it for my other topics, this series. It's fascinating. And somehow, I completely failed to include all of the wonderful information it has on the Gillis opera house. When I covered that in opera houses, Um, I'm seriously considering going back and redoing that episode with this additional information um, because it really adds a lot of good detail, but uh, the book is great. Super love it. Recommend it highly. And I spoke with Dr. Laundre, I think like two weeks ago now-ish. No, this is mid-March. Okay, I spoke to her like a month ago now. Anyways, um, that episode is for my patron supporters only. If you want to listen, please subscribe, and I think you would really enjoy it. And if you want to become a patron supporter, there are a few ways you can do so. You can subscribe to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. You can also give a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc or coffeecom slash homegrownkc. That's ko-fi.com slash homegrownkc. You can give as little or as much as you want. Once you sign up, create an account, subscribe to the show. You'll be charged on that day and then on the first of every following month. And if you become a patron, you get three things. One, you get an item from the merchandise store valued at $5 or less. You get a shout-out on every episode and social media post. So thank you, Bjorn, Joan, and my newest patron, Thomas. Thank you for your uh, support. Super appreciate it. Thomas, also, I have not heard from you about what you would like from the merchandise store, so please reach out to me. And you get access to all this exclusive bonus content. If you simply donate, you do not get anything from the store and you do not get access to the bonus content, but we will give you a shout out on the next available episode. Additionally, if you donate through coffee.com/homegrownkc, 1% automatically goes to help fight climate change. If you cannot support me monetarily, which totally understand, then you can still support me by following, liking, subscribing to all my social media pages. That's Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, and Tumblr. I also have a YouTube channel. Make sure to rate and review me wherever you listen, but especially on Apple Podcasts. And just tell all your friends and family about me. Get them listening to the show. You can visit my website for additional information on each topic. That's homegrownkc.wordpress.com. And you can sign up for my newsletter there Uh, once a month, usually the first of the month or maybe the first Saturday of the month is what it's been the past couple months. Um, You'll get an email from me that says, hey, here's what's new. Here's what's coming up. Here's what you can look forward to. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com or DM me on any of the social media networks. Visit www.zazzle.com slash store slash homegrown underscore KC underscore store to see what merchandise is available. That's Z A Z Z L E dot com slash store slash homegrown underscore KC underscore store. Thank you goes out to my very talented sister in law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo to the Dear Mrs. for the use of their song Kansas City as the intro and outro music of the show, and to local libraries which enabled me to gather all my research. Thanks for listening. Cheers.
1: Seem to shake this feeling, and I can seem to get you off my mind.